Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Nick Estes. He's an assistant professor of American studies at the University of New Mexico and the co-founder of the indigenous resistance group, the Red Nation. Dr. Estes is a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux tribe and the author of Our History is the Future, a book about the indigenous-led movement to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline and its historical context. The book is out now through the publisher Verso. Nick Estes, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So Nick, why don't you take a few minutes before we get started to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself uh, and how you became a writer and an academic? Sure. So I have an undergrad and a master's degree in history from the University of South Dakota, and I actually finished my PhD in American Studies from University of New Mexico, um, where I am currently an assistant professor, and I actually began writing um, I actually learned to write in grad school um, when I took a writing assignment um, to, to document and to report on border town violence, essentially uh, police uh, and state and vigilante violence against indigenous people who are seen as being off the reservation. And um, the The reception for these pieces, um, which actually won an award at the Native American Journalists Association, really pushed me to consider writing for a popular audience. And so um, as a historian, you know, we are storytellers. And so I really wrote this book, Our History is the Future, for uh, a wide um, audience or general audience, but also specifically for young people, um, because I see this book as kind of um, intervening in not just um, history as a discipline, uh, but in in the world and in politics, especially in indigenous movements. So how did you come to write this book in particular? There's a real sense of urgency to the writing. And you talk about how you set aside your doctoral dissertation and wrote most of it in about a month. Sure. I did the actual act of writing within a four-week period, but the research itself I had been doing for quite some time because it's not just about the events that unfolded at Standing Rock. It's also about this longer kind of historical trajectory that I put Standing Rock um, um, within a larger, you know, his, uh, historical context. And the way I wrote this book, um, you know, it it was something that was I was encouraged to do by others. I felt like um, I was abandoning my dissertation project, which actually became a condensed um, version of chapter seven, um, internationalism. And so my original dissertation project was looking at the question of indigenous internationalism within the the specific context of the 20th and the 21st centuries. Uh, But the other chapters were actually um, papers that I had um, attempted to present at various conferences and had worked on, uh, but then kind of, you know, uh, became chapters or the bulk of this book. And in reality, the, the 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 stories that I tell in this book, the longer kind of historical narrative that I tell, was actually something that 
I just grew up um, hearing as a child, my dad would tell me the history of the dams. I heard it from my grandparents. Um, as I became a young adult, I heard a lot of these stories about the American Indian movement, specifically from the, um, the, the women that participated in Red Power themselves. And so the, the framing of, you know, even um, thinking about Red Power from the, the, the vantage point of American Indian women and specifically Lakota women actually comes from, you know, my own personal experience knowing a lot of these um, uh, women like Mabel Ann, um, Eagle Hunter and Madonna Thunderhawk and Marcy Gilbert, people who are in the book, but also uh, Phyllis Young as well. Uh, but the, the other stuff with the 19th century um, and how it connects with the 20th century and the 21st century um, uh, periods is that when we tell our history, oftentimes there isn't, you know, um, the kind of truncated periodization that we find typically in, in you know, in, in American history. Um, oh, this is the allotment, you know, the allotment era, the reservation era, the era, of, you know, the Indian New Deal, um, you know, termination, red power, et cetera, you know. Um, the way that a lot of these folks um, talk about history and the way that we talked about history growing up is that history very much constructs our present. And so in one, in one sentence, you know, you, or in one, in one story, you would have a story that came, you know, bef- what we call Uhunkanka, which is like from the before times, before there is like, you know, living memory, the old, old stories. And then the next story would be something that happened in the 20th century. And then the next story would be something that happened in the 19th century. And so the way that we understand history through oral tradition is very, um, I hate to use the word nonlinear because we do have a conception of time, right? But it is, it, it very much um, bleeds into different eras. And I think there's a, um, a disservice ha- that happens when we truncate things such as like the Wounded Knee Massacre as kind of marking the, the end of one era and the beginning of the other. Because even Black Elk himself, who witnessed the Wounded Knee Massacre, and I talk about this in the book, um, didn't see that as like an end of a certain era. He just saw it as a continuation of what it means to be Lakota. You know, you focus on seven historical moments in this book. Would you mind walking the readers briefly through what those are and how you came to focus on them? So I chose seven historical moments um, specifically because seven is, you know, to represent the seven generations. And um, seven generations isn't just a projection of seven generations into the future. Actually, um, I, I consider Vine Deloria's um, conceptualization of the seven generations the most um, uh, useful in thinking about what he called, you know, three generations back, three generations forward, and then the current generation is is yourself. So, for example, um, if you've met your great grandparents, you know. Uh, in your lifetime, then you're considered a lucky person, right? But then also your grandparents and your parents, that's three generations. And if you're lucky enough, you can meet, you know, not just your children, but their, their, their children and their children's children. So your great grandchildren. So if a Lakota person, a Dakota person, you know, lived a good life, they could meet all of those generations. And it's not biological by any means, but it's, it's a generational thing. And so, these chapters are kind of split into um, thinking about um, each of these eras as a, as a sort of uh, generation. And the first is origins, which kind of juxtaposes our creation stories with 
the origins of capitalism and settler colonialism on our lands with the arrival of the fur trade. So I juxtapose the uh, story of Teskawi, the white buffalo calf woman, who essentially made us Lakota and Dakota people today and brought us into correct relations with the world with the arrival of European invaders um, and then you know the United States fur trade and how it really upset that world. And then the second chapter is called War, where I look at um, the concept of war as not something that has necessarily a beginning and an end, but it has a beginning, but something that hasn't really ended. And looking at um, the 19th century Indian wars on the Northern Plains as um, kind of a continuation of an Indian war and creating the modern um, tactics that we now know as counterinsurgency, but also looking at um, anti-colonial resistance movements, um, not just the of the armed um, kind that we're familiar with, um, you know, such as like the victories of a hundred in hands, um, that, which was known as the Fetterman massacre, um, or the victory of uh, Greasy Grass, or which was known as um, the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1776, 100 years you know, <laughs> um, when the United States was trying to celebrate its 100 years of so-called independence. Uh, and then, or, but at looking at like the more, um, the, 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 the resistance that happened, um, during the ghost dance movement as well, and thinking of that as a modern anti-colonial movement that is just as important as these other sort of more armed struggles. And then the third chapter is, or the, the third um, era that I look at is, um, uh, it's called, uh, the flood, which is looking at these New Deal era policies of um, damming the Missouri River, you know, beginning with uh, the Fort Peck Dam in the 1930s to essentially provide um, regional employment opportunities for settlers, but also to provide irrigation um, and hydroelectricity, which then evolved into the 1944 Flood Control Act which authorized the Army Corps of Engineers to build five earthen-rolled dams on the main stem of the Missouri River. Uh, in the end, it resulted in you know, the, the annihilation of 75% of our wildlife on the Lakota and Dakota reservations within or that border of the Missouri River, and the taking of 90% of our agricultural or of our commercial timber, and the removal of one-third of our um, uh, reservation populations. And Tribes such as the Fort Berthold um, Reservation, which are not part of the Ocheti Shakoi, um, but are made up of the Mandan, Arikara, and, and Hidatsa tribe, also, you know, faced um, a much more profound loss, um, and you know, anywhere upwards to like ninety percent um, destruction of their agricultural lands and a removal up to eighty percent of their um, tribal membership. So. This era was very traumatic and very um, turbulent for a lot of our folks, um, not just the Lakota and Dakota people, but also other indigenous nations. Um, and as a result, it coincided with, um, with, and it wasn't by accident, but it coincided with termination and relocation policies to terminate the federal status of tribal nations and then to relocate Native people off the land. So uh, our land in this context wasn't really valued because it held some kind of like uh, minerals or, you know, was desired as agricultural land, but our land was valued for the opposite reasons because it could be destroyed and wasted. And so it kind of works in tandem with 
federal termination policy, but also the the, the massive um, public works projects that were um, going on at the time. And the fifth era that I talk about is Red Power in response to termination and relocation and the arrival of a new kind of militant protest movement, um, not just in the form of the American Indian movement, but in this in this broader kind of national and international context and looking at how um, this really reshaped a lot of uh, the politics um, in the region. And I look specifically at uh, border towns such as Rapid City and how this was um, very much an off-reservation, but also an on-reservation movement. Um, while we often think about, you know, the really spectacular forms of protest um, arising from Alcatraz, the occupation of Alcatraz in 1969, the, the Bureau of Indian uh, Affairs uh, takeover in 1972 with the Trail of Broken Treaties, um, or or the uh, Wounded Knee um, occupation in 1973, um, we often kind of forget the, the the reasons why this movement kicked off. And that's what I try to really kind of push um, uh, push in this chapter is to think about, you know, the, the survival schools that were created in the urban context as a challenge to the public education system, but also um, the women who played an important role in shaping those politics um, and creating organizations such as like Women of All Red Nations. And then the sixth um, era that I look at is the era that often um, gets left out when we talk about red power, and that's the movement to take the indigenous uh, indigenous rights and treaty claims to the United Nations. And that actually, you know, centered in Standing Rock. Um, it was the Standing Rock Sioux Tribal Council that had invited the American Indian movement and these red power activists to their nation when, you know, this was post wounded knee and a lot of places didn't want to accept them um, and take them in. But it was, you know, Standing Rock's um, kind of foresight as a, as a tribal nation um, that saw them as a vehicle to take their treaty claims to the court. And the two areas that they wanted to focus on, as I point out in the book, were the, the destruction of the river uh, because of the Pixlone Dam's as well as the taking of the Black Hills, which happened in in nineteen uh, in in seventeen um, in seventeen seventy or I'm sorry eighteen seventy seven with the Black Hills Act, and so this was really a coalescence of the Red Power movement, but also it was a longer kind of historical movement to um, that I trace in the that originated in the Treaty Councils, um, and it has its origins also in the uh, Society of American Indians, which was founded by um, folks like Henry Standing Bear uh, and Charles Eastman, um, to actually take the treaty claim and the Black Hills claim to U.S. Congress. And then eventually they hoped to take it to the League of Nations following World War I, but that never happened for various reasons that I detail in the book. But looking at the, the trajectory, um, you know, we can look at the touchstone document of the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, and we can look at the four decades that we fought for um, beginning in 1974 until its passage in 2007 um, as, as historic, but also we can look at it within a longer kind of um, historical context as well. And that's what I try to do and putting it specifically in the context of Lakota and Dakota um, movements. And then the last chapter, the seventh chapter is liberation, which is kind of 
an unwritten, you know, future oriented um, chapter where I'm really trying to draw from the lessons of the past and trying to put this, um, the, the lessons um, that we that we can learn from our own struggle as um, the Ocheti Shakoi into the context of what a future premised on justice might look like. And as a historian, you know, I often get asked the question, I mean, just the title of the book has the word future in it. So I'm often asked the question of what does the future look like? And I, um, to be honest, I don't know what that is, what it does look like. But as a historian, I think um, my philosophy on it is that I look, you know, I, I travel backwards, walking backwards into the future, looking at the past um, to help kind of guide me. Um, and so that's, I guess that's my response to that. Um, um, those questions is, is that this is really kind of a study and a meditation on our past to understand the, um, the resurgent ind- indigenous histories that happened at Standing Rock, but they're not just kind of truncated. It's not just a moment in time, but it's a continuation. Yeah, that's excellent. You know, at one point you're talking about the counterinsurgency tactics to repress resistance as part of a global war. Could you talk more about the global mechanism in place that you saw at Standing Rock and in your work? Sure. Um, I spent some time looking through the emails that were released by, you know, the Muckrock um, website and looking at some of the documents that were released by The Intercept um, and looking at the the ways in which private security personnel, as well as um, law enforcement personnel who were operating in the context of the or operating in the context of the, the Standing Rock protests were framing their role and the, the the examples that they were drawing on. And one kind of, I think, kind of like smoking gun email for me was an email that was um, sent by a private security contractor. He wasn't, I'm sorry, a private contractor. He was just a helicopter contractor that would essentially fly his helicopter. He had a yellow helicopter. We called it Tweety Bird um, in the camps. Um, and we see, we've seen it some, you know, we've seen it outside the context of the camps, but essentially his, company was like a first response or was first response oil spill company that was hired by a lot of these fracking rigs and stuff in case there was an oil spill he would go out and throw i think it was like wood chips on it or something but he was being contracted by um tiger swan this kind of murky mercenary security company that was hired by um dakota access pipeline to police these protests but then we found out later was actually providing intelligence um, from this aerial surveillance um, a, a helicopter company um and this helicopter company this pilot was sending emails you know to these um these these police officers and he's like you know you you know one email he said you know you should check out um this biochemical weapon called skunk spray that uh the israeli uh, defense forces had developed to use against uh, palestinian civilians protesting um you know um Israeli occupation of their homelands. And then, you know, further on in the email, he lists all of these things of where skunk spray should be deployed uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border, um, at Ferguson and Baltimore to prevent, like, quote-unquote, looters. And so essentially what he was doing is he was placing um, the standing rock within the context of a lot lot of these um, larger uprisings. And even the field of force manual that was um, circulated uh, by FEMA uh, and Homeland Security amongst um, uh, the, the law enforcement who were working this, um, the protests, 
actually references specifically Black-led uprisings in Ferguson and Baltimore. And even um, uh, Jack Dalrymple, the governor of, of North Dakota, when he declared a state of emergency, invoked the powers of the Emergency Management Assistance Compact, which had last been used by um, the state of Baltimore to crush a Black-led uprising after the, the police killing of Freddie Gray. Um, and so in the context of North Dakota, EMAC, as the acronym is known, was actually um, used to suppress, you know, a, a, a quote-unquote like domestic uprising. And so the Emergency Management Assistance um, Compact was actually created to help states in times of natural disaster. Um, but it's been more and more used as a as a um, as a uh, um, emergency um, effort against um, these these uprisings, whether they're black led uprisings or in the context of Standing Rock and indigenous led uprisings. So in many ways, it's not me just kind of like pulling this stuff out of a hat and saying, you know, these are these movements are all intersectional and. You know, we have to be allied with Black Lives Matter. We have to be allied with Palestinian rights and all those things. I can say that, but the actual connection that the security state is making itself is actually saying these movements are connected to Black Lives Matter and Palestinian justice. Yeah. And you make the point, too, when you're talking about the no doppel camps, you're using the words of Ruth Wilson Gilmore here. You call them an, an abolition geography. Could you talk more about what you mean by an abolition geography? Right. Um, Ruthie is is essentially talking about or she's she's building on Du Bois's W.E.B. Du Bois's notion of an abolition democracy which kind of came out of um reconstruction or radical reconstruction as he you know as he 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 writes in um a black reconstruction um and what he's talking about is this kind of like this you know kind of the suspension of the, the normative anti-blackness following, you know, um, the civil war and this attempt to create a more democratic society. Right. And so, um, Gilmore, Ruthie Gilmore is really drawing from that kind of black radical tradition and arguing that, you know, freedom, you know, isn't just a, isn't just a practice, but it's an actual place and it manifests in certain, you know, times. And she, you know, she references anything from the, the Palestinian intifada to um, efforts to reclaim kind of like uh, black and Latino um, neighborhoods in moments of uprising. And so, for example, we can see, you know, we can talk about um, the Ferguson uprising and the way it brought together um, rival gangs. And, and, you know, despite all the federal and um, uh, private foundation money that goes into preventing um, gang violence and curbing gang violence, it's actually um, and a black-led uprising against police violence that actually unites rival gangs. And so in these moments of crisis, new kind of possibilities emerge. And I would say that the no dapple camps were part of that. You know, freedom is a place people create societies um, when given the opportunity according to their own needs. And they don't naturally tend towards um, creating kind of coercive institutions of the state. And so I make the point that the the kind of we can look at what was not in the in the no dapple camps and what was not there was a military you know sur- the military surrounded the camps for sure and what was not there were an armed body of the state right there were no weapons allowed and what were not there were also um, the keeping out of drugs and alcohol but you know 
what I argue is that indigenous kind of liberation isn't just the absence of settler colonialism or the absence of these institutions. It's actually the amplified presence of indigenous social um, and political and cultural institutions. So we had, um, in the positive sense, we had the reunification of the Ocheti Shakoi. They rebuilt the Camp Horn, kind of modeled after um, what we know in history um, as the, the the nation of the seven council fires, uh, the Lakota, Nakota, and Dakota speaking people. So representatives were chosen to represent each of those seven uh, original council fires. Um, we also had the creation of, you know, in, in true indigenous hospitality, the, the number one question is, how are you going to get fed, right? <laughs> so yeah, the creation of kitchens, right? Um, that provided, you know, free food to everybody who could come. We had a donation tent that, you know, um, people, campers who didn't have tents, who didn't have jackets, who didn't have sleeping bags, et cetera, were provided for, you know, what really makes a, a, a movement um, is like what I, what I saw uh, at Standing Rock is people would just show up, you know, um, families who had nothing all of a sudden had a place, you know, in this, in this new world that we, that was under creation. And you also had um, free um, health clinics that were set up by folks like Linda Black Elk and Sarah Jumping Eagle um, and, you know, promoting, um, you know, holistic health care, not just kind of like preventative care, although there was a lot of that um, in triage, of course, because people were getting brutalized by police. But um, looking at, you know, holistic healthcare and thinking about healthcare in a different way. And that was free and provided to everybody. The other one was education. You had the Defenders of the Water School um, built by um, Elena or founded and, you know, kind of promoted by Elena Eagle Shield, um, which, you know, the question is like, who's going to take care of all these kids? This is the, you know, the 10th largest city in North Dakota. Um, you know, there's children here, how are they going to be taken care of? And so that was another question. And so free education, free healthcare, free food, you know, access, not just free food, but access to quality food, you know, most uh, Indian reservations and poor communities in the United States and the rest of the world don't have access to these things. And it demonstrates that in the absence of, you know, the coercive elements of the state that people, indigenous people uh, first, but then also people in general, um, uh, provide the things um, or the needs of society um, for everybody. And so I think that was a, I think that really crystallizes what um, Ruthie Gilmore was calling abolition de- uh, geography. Just when you were talking, you got at something else I noticed in the book, which is the importance of women in these resistance movements. Could you talk more about the importance of women and gender, both at Standing Rock and in the longer tradition of indigenous resistance movements? Right. You know, of all indigenous people, Lakota people specifically, um, and even to some to, to some degree, Dakota people as well. But Lakota people specifically are um, often seen as hyper masculine societies. If you just Google Lakota people or Lakota leader, leaders and you look at the images that come up, they're more likely going to be tintype black and white photographs of indigenous men uh, of the 19th century. And while they, they, you know, they should be recognized as leaders, absolutely. Um, uh, in the, the first encounters we had with uh, European, um, with Europeans were primarily European men, right? A lot of these, um, 
fur traders, a lot of these so-called explorers and soldiers uh, and settlers um, came out just as groups of men. And, you know, I, be, I, I trace this back to um, the arrival of, you know, the fur, the fur trade, because the fur trade in my mind, or to my mind and to many of us, uh, were the first man camps. They were called fur trade forts. You're combining um, uh, economy and markets with militarization, right? Um, and what happened at these fur trade forts? And I give the example of, you know, the place where I was born and raised in Chamberlain, South Dakota, which was formerly Fort Kiowa, um, which played a huge kind of role in the, you know, the blockbuster film, um, The Revenant, um, which was fictionalized to some degree, but the the depiction of violence, I would argue, was um, fairly accurate because there, there was a lot of rape. There was a lot of um, violence against indigenous women and children. And when, you know, Hugh Glass, the main protagonist, which is played by, or who is played by um, Leonardo DiCaprio, when he arrives at Fort Kiowa outside, he sees indigenous women and children kind of begging and also being traded amongst um, the, the fur trade, uh, the, the fur traders themselves, um, who are these white men who are living in a, a, a transient, you know, all men camp, right, um, in an extractive industry. Uh, which was the fur trade. And so these fur trade forts really were the first man camps and they later became border towns. But the the penetration of capital into our homelands and the penetration of capital into many other, you know, indigenous contexts um, coincides with the, with extreme amounts of gendered violence against indigenous women specifically. And it just, it was not just violence for violence sake, but it actually performs a political function because I would argue that it undermines indigenous women's political authority within our own nations because trade um, diplomacy is only seen as the realm of men, right? And so when you don't recognize uh, uh, women's leadership, then, you know, you're not going to make treaties with them. Um, You're not going to trade with them, right? And so the subordination of indigenous women's political authority is an important um, part of the colonization process. And it's affected the way that we write history, unfortunately, because a lot of those indigenous women are simply erased and not just indigenous women, you know, um, folks who are non-gender conforming don't fall into that binary. And that's something that we've we've lost, unfortunately, um, to a large degree is those histories. But we do see the continuation of indigenous women's societies um, into the 20th and 21st centuries that still hold um, that oral history and there are projects that are coming out about it, but um, you know, in the in the, I think one of the most um, compelling figures in my mind that often gets is so misunderstood um, is Zink Kalashaw, or you know, who was born um, Gertrude Bonin. But she's such a compelling figure in my mind because she embodies kind of the the tenacity of a lot of um, of uh, Dakota and Lakota women in our own um, political and intellectual traditions. But yet her role is often minimized, even though she was advocating things in the early 20th century that most tribes um, today, you know, won't advocate for because they're considered too radical. But I think she kind of really, in my mind, is is a um, really is a epitomizes that that kind of um, uh, tradition amongst um, Lakota and Dakota women specifically. 
Yeah. And the book is filled with those stories of violence, of uh, genocide and set of colonialism. But you end with a sense of possibility for collective liberation. Liberation is the title of your last chapter. I think the end is really a call to action. You say, for the earth to live, capitalism must die. Could you tell us more about that sense of possibility? I'm of the mind that capitalism, because it is a social system um, and has enveloped the globe, is a primary driver of climate change. And I'm also of the mind that indigenous knowledge alone is not going to save the planet. Um, I think there are remnants within our knowledge systems, our cultural practices, and our outlook, you know, our worldview um, that are kind of the building blocks for a, a new world. But I, I think it's simplistic and, you know, just frankly um, wrong to say that indigenous peoples have the answer uh, to global um, climate change and to stave off, you know, what is the sixth math, mass extinction in, on, on planet Earth. So what that means and what I'm, why, why I'm bringing that up is because the, the tackling of something like, you know, climate change, we can deal with the symptoms, right? And there are, there are already proposals to transition us out of um, the kind of fossil fuel economy. But it's being led by the same, you know, captains of industry who got us into this mess in the first place. And to my mind, that is the primary contradiction. Uh, climate change is not just an indigenous problem. It's everybody's problem. And, you know, we have to confront that in a very honest way. And um, I think the most successful movements within, you know, within the last um, 50 years have been allied and specifically in the context of the United States, I should say, have been allied indigenous and non-indigenous movements. Somebody like Zoltan Grossman, you know, has a book called Unlikely Alliances, where he traces these kind of more rural alliances between indigenous um, um, organizers and white organizers who are considered, quote unquote, like traditional enemies, you know. Uh, but they beat back these multinational corporations. And the next step, I think, is to to even, ex I mean, I think Standing Rock shows what's possible, right? When we foreground um, decolonization, which includes indigenous and non-indigenous people, um, and when we foreground, um, you know, uh, anti-capitalism. And that's a very broad subject, right? But I think in the long run, it includes everybody. And everybody has a role to play. Um, and I think what we're seeing now with um, proposals, you know, uh, by folks such as uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with the Green New Deal, is that this, there is, you know, there is um, something that we have to fight for. Who's going to fund the Green New Deal? You know, who's, where are we going to get the resources to do this? They exist. Um, and they're over, you know, we exist in a, a a society of overabundance. And I think the Green New Deal uh, points to that to say that this wealth may be ill-gotten and needs to be redistributed. And these resources need to be redistributed to repair the planet. Um, and there's, you know, there's a conversation and a, de a debate happening about what that looks like. But I can, I will say, and I do want to emphasize this, is that Ocasio-Cortez is herself a water protector. She began her campaign uh, her successful campaign um, for Congress 
when she was at Standing Rock. She arrived after Trump's election, like many people who were disillusioned, right, with what had just happened. And so this history really continues beyond the camps. I read elsewhere, too, that your study of the Pick Sloan plan, which is part of your chapter on flooding, broached concerns for you about some of the rhetoric around the Green New Deal right now and the massive federal works projects. Could you elaborate on that and what that meant for indigenous communities in the past? Right. I think to look at this in a longer context, and I don't specifically say this in the book, but if we look at, you know, I, I kind of separated out as like four invasions of our of our specific territory. So Chetishakoni the first was the fur trade, um, which you know essentially the expansion into that into the Missouri River Basin uh, happened in 1837 when there was a national economic kind of collapse um, for the United States. The third was the annihilation of the buffalo and the rail and the Continental Railroad. Um, which happened, um, you know, it, during Reconstruction, and then you know you had the crash of 1873, which led to a greater push westward, um, and then you have the third invasion, which I would call the New Deal era, right, with the the, the collapse, uh, um, you know, the Great Depression, and the push to build um, these large public work projects to essentially pull the settler economy out of the gutter, and now we're in the fourth invasion, which is the North American oil boom. Um, where because of, you know, federal policies that incentivize domestic oil production, specifically starting around 2007 and 2008 with the housing, um, the housing, the the subprime mortgage um, crisis, um, you have the increase, you know, from 2008 to 2016, domestic oil production in the United States increased by 88%. And we are now the number one producer and exporter of oil in the world. We've, we have surpassed, because of you know, recent discoveries of oil, like in the Permian Basin, um, we have now surpassed Saudi Arabia and Russia. And so when we're looking at, you know, when we've looked at how the United States and how these settler economies get themselves out of the gutter, they often turn to indigenous lands. And so essentially what's happened is the U.S. has drilled its way out of the Great Recession. Um, And when we lack alternatives, um, we get folks like, you know, Trump. And we get right-wing authoritarians, whether it's in Bolsonaro in Brazil, whether it's Modi in India. This is a global phenomenon, right? There's These are responses to these kind of geopolitical alignments, realignments that are happening. And the Green New Deal, while, you know, we support it and we, we, you know, there's, I I support it personally in principle, it kind of invokes that language of like, we're going to do another mass scale, you know, public works project to essentially, you know, save the planet. But how how is that going to happen? I I get concerned because, you know, if, is it going to be, um, the, the extraction of biofuels, you know, um, is this going to be exported to, you know, the, the violence of this is going to be exported to other parts of the world where, you know, rare earth mining is destroying, you know, people's communities and sacred sites. These are things that I, you know, I'm deeply concerned of. I don't think that's the intention behind it, but it, it could be the result of it. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be remiss not to point out too for future readers of this book that it's so well written. And Philip Deloria writes that you have, quote, the literary skill of the poet, unquote. And I wanted to ask you, this book is part history, manifesto, intergenerational story. What was the hardest part for you to write? 
the hardest part to write was the personal part of it, the part that I center myself. And I went back and forth over it because for me, like even reading, I remember reading my grandfather's words for the first time um, when I was an adult. I had no idea that he was a writer, that any of my grandparents were writers or more historians. And um, I felt like in some ways, when you know sharing that history was very personal to me um but then also the idea that like my you know that my personal story is like somehow exceptional or unique and i will say flat out that it's not at all and what convinced me to share that kind of personal aspect of you know my family history is that i hope that it would encourage others to um to to see, you know, like that this isn't just my history, but this is many people's history. My family's story isn't unique. We were one of many families who was displaced by the dams. We're one of many families who have a long tradition of historians and intellectuals. You know, I'm one of Lakota, one of many of thousands and thousands of Lakota people who have these these traditions. And so in that sense, it gives you just a slice and a sliver. And if somebody wants to, you know, live vicariously through our, you know, through my story, then that's fine. And it, it I, but it's not, I just want to say for some foremost, it's not exceptional. And that's really what convinced me. I had a back and forth with one of my editors. And she really convinced me that this is something that you know, needs to, um, to happen. And actually, I feel like in some ways it was a breakthrough because it's not really about the self in that sense. It's a, it's about kind of my own my my family history as a collective, but also my nation, Lower Brule Sioux Tribe, as well as the larger nation, the Ochetbi Shakoni, it's it's our history in that sense. It's not just mine to say that I have the right to share it or not. It's actually it belongs to a, a lot of people. Is that what you mean when at one point you call this a history of relationships? You write that rather than a study of objects, individuals and ideas, this is a history of relationships. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. It's, it's a temporal, um, relationship with time. I mean, I've heard Madonna Thunderhawk said it best, you know, somebody had asked her at, at one of her, um, film showings about her, you know, her and her daughter called warrior women. They asked her, they said, why do you do this work? It's brought you know so much pain and anguish to your own, you know, personal life, you know, and, you shared this story and it's very vulnerable. You know, it's a very uh, touching story. And she said, my goal is to be good, a good ancestor to future generations. And to my mind, that's what I was trying to accomplish in, in this book. It's not just about the relationship with the present, but it's, it's to, to be a good you know, ancestor to the future. And an and elder once told me, she said, you know, she, told me flatly she said you don't even own your own life my dear you're only here to ensure the coming generations and you know it's not this fatalistic kind of like you know um view it's actually i think it's a very poetic view i think it's a very uh it's humbling because in in some senses you don't feel alone you have the weight of history that's pushing you know you forward and pushing you onwards but also the goal is to you know, pass that down to um, younger folks as well. And so I think um, that relationship I, I am really trying to establish with um, a certain reader, which is, which is young folks, um, 
people like myself who needed something like this growing up. Right, right. You know, Nick, we've taken up quite a bit of your time already. So I just have a couple of questions for you. I just, first of all, what are you working on next? What else can we look forward to from you? Yeah, my next project is looking at, it's going to be taking up the, the dissertation that I, I didn't abandon, but put on kind of the, the back burner. But I'm looking at indigenous internationalism and not just in the progressive sense of like going to the United Nations and establishing our rights, but actually how indigeneity, you know, really thinking like what Jody Bird has done with Transit of Empire, how indigeneity really gets inscripted into um, the imperial project in the 20th century. And so, for example, looking at like the way that these New Deal um, reformers that were brought into the Indian, uh, the, the, the Indian Bureau of Indian Affairs under John Collier, um, were actually later um, hired by the Department of Navy to um, work on the transition of um, from military to civilian rule and newly acquired territorial possessions in the Pacific, right? And how, you know, uh, the war relocation authority camps, um, many of the the, bureau, the Indian Bureau um, anthropologists were hired to essentially oversee or to study um, civilian administration in a prisoner of war camp. Um, some of them were actually housed on reservations, such as the Colorado Indian Reservation, um, and how Indian reformers themselves, indigenous people themselves became part of that project. Um, but then also like how, you know, later on, um, indigenous internationalism was something that was contested. Was it part of the third world? Was it part of the global South? Was it separate from that? You know, these are things that I'm really interested in. And I think, um, you know, one of the areas that I have always found really productive in having a conversation around, um, you know, especially that, um, there's more emerging scholarship on it is the question of Nicaragua in the 1980s and how it really, and I didn't get a chance to touch on it in my book, but how it really split um, parts of the the um, Red Power movement over the question of whether they should back the Mosquito Indians who were being you know supplied with weapons by the CIA um, and the Contras to overthrow the Sandinistas or whether they should back the Sandinista rebellion and you know, some, some people boil it down to the question of Marxism, but I think there's something deeper there. And, um, but to, to my mind, I think the productive question is that indigenous people in the 20th century specifically saw themselves as global people and thought beyond the bounds of um, the nation state. So that's the next project that I'm working on. Wow, that's, that's excellent that you continue with the internationalism scholarship, because that was a very good chapter in the book. And so it'd be great to see where that goes in the future. Um, before we go, could you tell us a little bit about the Red Nation and some of your work actually in New Mexico? Sure. The Red Nation is um, an indigenous-led organization that formed in 2014. And we formed to address border town violence, which you know is, is kind of a vernacular amongst indigenous people. Essentially, what a border town is, is the white-dominated settlements that ring Indian reservations um, where you know patterns of uh, violence, whether it's from the police or everyday settlers, kind of defines everyday life off the reservation. And that could be pretty much anywhere in the United States. Uh, but but um, essentially, we started as like an urban kind of based um, organization in Albuquerque looking at um, working with uh, folks who are experiencing houselessness. Um, and we've expanded uh, to look at, you know, areas of um, LGBTQ rights within indigenous communities. Um, we're now working on um, 
uh, challenging fracking uh, in the greater uh, Chaco landscape. While there has been like a moratorium placed on fracking in, in Chaco Canyon, um, Navajo or Diné communities are still affected by the kind of checkerboarded area. And so we've been working with a lot of those folks and um, on, on moving towards a moratorium on fracking within the state. And then also that kind of like springboards us into the next project, that the next major project that we're working on, which is something we call the Red Deal, which is not really against the, the Green New Deal, but expanding it for like an indigenous context. And so we're focusing on three areas. The first is what we call end the occupation. It's like looking at divestment from um, um, carceral institutions, uh, the military, uh, immigration, et cetera, et cetera and reinvesting into two other areas, which we call um, heal, healing our bodies and healing the land. And healing our bodies includes anything from sustainable and appropriate um, housing, because housing crisis in the Indian country on and off the reservation is a really big issue. Uh, mental health, youth suicide, murder and missing indigenous women, and then land restoration is like, how do we create sustainable jobs that are actually um, uh, bolstering what's already being done on the land with um, caretakers of the land, caretakers of water, of air, of um, animals, and um, you know people who are living in the 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 kind of urban context. So it's kind of like a holistic plan that we're working on and thinking about grassroots policy reform. Um, but it really kind of gets at the heart of who we are as um, as the Red Nation. We're a youth led organization. I'm not an elected leader. I'm just a rank and file member, but. We have about um, 50 um, committed members um, and about you know 100 to 200, I'm, I'm not quite sure, um, people that are kind of at large that are doing work. And we're not a nonprofit. We, we're entirely self-funded. Um, and yeah, we work on anything from migrant rights um, in, in undocumented indigenous communities um, to murdered missing indigenous women to the extractive economies to just holding you know political education. Um, workshops within the context of Albuquerque, Gallup, Santa Fe, um, Navajo Nation, or any of the surrounding pueblos. So yeah, um, the Red Nation is just kind of a political vehicle of the intellectual project that I'm a part of in the academy. And is it therednation.org? Is there a website where you can send people to? Yeah, it's therednation.org. And you can find information on the Red Deal, uh, we also have a podcast called Red Revolution Radio. Um, I'm the one who writes the newsletter, and I haven't I've been kind of derelict in my duties, but um, <laughs> there should be another newsletter coming out soon with um, a lot of the events that we have uh, going on in the summer. So if folks want to check it out, you can go there. Excellent. Nick, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Our History of the Future is out now. And Nick, we really hope to have you back again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ryan. Yeah, take care.